Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and stand with me to read God's Word. And as we do, let me just say this. I love God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and I love His Word because in it, He has communicated everything we need to know Him and to love Him and to serve Him, and this is the Word that we get to read today. Uh, we're going to read just four verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, once again that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your wonderful word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In our study in Matthew, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount now for several months. It started with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, a description of those who follow Jesus, what God brings about in the lives of those who acknowledge his rule, It continued on in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, speaking of believers being salt and light out in the world. What difference Jesus makes as they influence the world in which they live. How they impact the world, in it but not of it. And now in chapter 5 and verses 17 through 20, Jesus focuses on God's communication. God's communication to mankind. Mankind was created in God's image, made to communicate. So it stands to reason that God would communicate uh, to us. He did so through his general revelation, his word, excuse me, his world, his world, general revelation, his world, uh, through which certain things can be known about him, his existence, some of his attributes. But it is only through his special revelation, his word, that we learn of God's purpose. We learn of mankind's rebellion. We learn of God's plan to send a savior. And in that plan, running like a a golden thread throughout scripture, we learn of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and promised return. The message of the cross is the only way to life. Now God chose to communicate his special revelation in such a way through words in written form, words that we can understand in a way in which we can read and also keep for a long, long time. He he spoke in such a way through words in written form progressively over many, many years through various human writers, human authors, so that his message would be preserved over thousands upon thousands of years. 
From the beginning of time, God had chosen to communicate with humans, but they have not always listened to what he has to say. From the time that Satan got Eve to doubt God's word, the serpent got Eve to doubt God's word, deceiving her into thinking that God is not good. It's been the same way ever since. Different people, different times, but the same issue. Did God really say that? He couldn't have have said that. And if he did, he surely didn't mean that. Let me tell you what he really meant. And so on. Scripture is undercut. Scripture is sold short. But God will always have his following. God will always have his, his remnant. And throughout history, there were those who, in spite of the human inclination to, to wander and to, to doubt and to rebel, they listened and responded to what he had to say. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, we read that God spoke through the prophets in many ways. And in the last days, chose to speak to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, the living Word, through whom he made the world. And Jesus, the living Word of God, had the highest possible view of God's written Word. He had the highest possible view of God's written word. In Matthew 5.17, which we looked at last week, we saw that Jesus' view of Scripture, that that God's word is preeminent. The Old Testament pointing to to Jesus' person and work and finds its completion in Christ. Jesus clarified and completed God's intent and meaning with regard to doctrine, to regard to prophecy, with regard to the sacrificial system, Uh, the moral standards, events of history, and so on. And Jesus had the highest possible view of Scripture. Now last week I gave two corresponding definitions, which are in your notes today. First, the authority of Scripture, which means that all the words are God's words, and disobeying or not believing any part of Scripture means disobeying or not believing God. That's what the authority of Scripture means. And secondly, the sufficiency of Scripture, which means that the Bible contains all the words of God He wanted us to have for salvation, for growth, and that everything we need for trusting and obeying Him is found in His written Word. That's what the sufficiency of Scripture means. Now, there are two main reasons why this is so important. First of all, God and His Word, as you well know, are not tolerated Um, They have been taken out of almost every sector of society. They're considered irrelevant, God and his word. Uh, Antiquated to believe that God has spoken authoritatively and sufficiently in his word. In most spheres of education, of media, of politics, of business, people have no room for the word of God and no room for God. There are entire TV networks that have taken any acknowledgement of God completely out of the picture. The fool says in his heart there is no God. But many watch program after program of godless foolishness or listen to hour after hour of music with a godless message and then think that that wouldn't undercut the effectiveness of God's word in their life. Anti-God worldviews reign 
in many a home, many a school, many an organization, many a business, and even in many a church. Now, it is in this context that God has placed us for such a time as this. Many of us remember a time when God's word was not trashed in the public arena as much as it is today. But our children do not. This is the world our children are growing up in. And so these are the things that we speak of today with regard to the permanence of God's word that we need to teach the the upcoming generations who have only known the context in which they now live. So it is into a context such as this, for such a time as this, that God has placed us to shine brightly with the light of the gospel, to hold forth the word of life. But there is a second reason why this is so important. There are many in the body of Christ who have been influenced by the idea that God's word is not sufficient. So they seek new revelation. They seek new revelation from God outside of Scripture, unaware that God does not speak independently of His Word, that He may give us Spirit-inspired understanding of existing revelation, but some think He speaks to them even when it's unconnected to scriptural truth. Here's what the Holy Spirit does as the Word of God teaches. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit assures believers of its truthfulness. But the Holy Spirit does not operate in isolation from or against Scripture. Let me repeat that. The Holy Spirit does not operate in isolation from or against Scripture. If you are getting communication contrary to this, it is not from God. But what happens is that spiritual feelings and spiritual impressions take precedence over the word of God for many. And by this, many are led astray. That's why this topic is so important. Christ's followers love his word and stand firmly on it and want not just to know his word, but to live his word in every sphere in which they operate. Explanation and clarification are important in many areas of life. Explanation and clarification of where we stand is always helpful, but never more helpful than as it relates to God's communication to mankind. This is a crucial question, as I mentioned, for the next generation. Foundations deteriorate and crumble due to neglect. A helpful resource that I have found is The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, written in 1978, and it begins like this, the authority of Scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this and every age. Those who profess faith in Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. Recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential 
to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. Basically, it is our only rule for faith and practice. Now, last week I mentioned the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Church's motto, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, which falls in line with one of the basic ideas of the Reformation, the Latin phrase sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean in case you uh, get mis, uh, misunderstood on this point. It doesn't mean that nothing but Scripture exists. Scripture alone doesn't mean that nothing but Scripture exists. And it doesn't mean that Scripture is higher than God. That would be denying the, the message of Scripture. What it means is this, that Scripture is completely unique and unrivaled in being God-breathed revelation, that nothing else is God-breathed revelation but Scripture. It acknowledges the sufficiency of God's Word, but it denies the existence of any other rule on the same level. What it means is we won't base our beliefs on anything but the Word of God, an objective standard we can trust. We can't trust our own feelings. We can't trust our own hearts. There is room for a healthy self-suspicion If we leave it up to ourselves and up to subjective feelings, we will go astray. But we won't base our beliefs on anything but the Word of God. Under God, the body of Christ, the church, by the Holy Spirit's enabling, looks to God's God's Word as the rule for faith and practice. His Word is authoritative. His Word is sufficient. That's what it means. So now today we turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. And we see that God's word is permanent. It lasts forever. Solid. Here's what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's what he said. He starts with truly. That word is literally amen. Amen. He begins the sentence with amen. It is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word for faithful, for reliable. He is saying faithful is what I'm about to say. Reliable is, about, is what I'm about to say. See, amen is a term used to strengthen and, and confirm what someone has said. Right? So a prayer or a praise or a promise is followed by a... Amen. So be it. Let it be so. But Jesus didn't use it this way. No. Jesus applied it to his own words at the beginning of a sentence. And it gives strength and it gives authority to what he is about to say. It signifies, amen, truly, uh, reliable, trustworthy. It signifies that something important is about to be said. So we best listen up, right? Here's what he said. Jesus is saying now, this is truth. Listen to it. He said, until heaven and earth pass away. Most of us would say, well, I knew the earth was going to pass away, but the heaven too. Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 7. Speaking of when Jesus comes again. 
It says this, But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The atmospheres and the earth are going to pass away. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Recycling is good and all that. But, Jesus equated his words to the word of God. In Matthew 24, verse 35, he said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. He said the same thing in Mark chapter 13, verse 31. He said the same thing in Luke chapter 21, verse 33. He said, until heaven and earth pass away, until the end of the age, and he claimed scriptural authority for his words, And he said, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke. In the King James, it's the jot and the tittle. It's not an iota. The Greek for yod, the King James jot, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, almost as small as a comma. And not a dot. The least stroke of the pen is most likely uh, referring to a serif, a tiny hook or projection that tells the difference between one Hebrew word, a letter, and another. Very small nuance in the language, the written language. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. It's easier. Pass from the law. He said uh, not one stroke or or. or, or Letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What will be accomplished? Um, Until all things prophesied have taken place. Until everything God has promised will happen, has happened. It points to the end of the age when Jesus returns. The law has not been abolished yet, but it has been fulfilled in Christ. And that those who are in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, those who are Christians, followers of Jesus have through him, through Christ, met all the requirements of the law. Jesus said, till all is accomplished, Christ's life, Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and return. Once again, establishing the centrality of the death and resurrection of Jesus as the pivotal point in in history, the central point of history. And what Jesus does in Matthew 5.18 is he affirms the full inspiration and authority of the Old Testament as Scripture for all time, permanently, down to the smallest parts of the written text. Jesus referred to the Old Testament over 60 times and always as absolute truth. Always. He said in John 10.35, the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus is saying that the inspiration and authority of God's word goes all the way to the actual words and even all the way to the seemingly insignificant parts. Jots and tittles and commas and strokes of the pen. There is no other statement that Jesus made more clearly that shows his claim 
that Scripture is without error in the original form that God gave it. Now, why could Jesus say this? I want to highlight three characteristics of Scripture that we need to have a firm grasp of. And two very helpful resources to me in this quest have been R.C. Sproul's book, Scripture Alone, as well as James White's book by the same title, Scripture Alone. I'm not sure how they got that through, uh, but they both have the same name for their books written within two years of one another. But the first thing, uh, the first characteristic of Scripture that I'll mention is that it is inspired. It is inspired. This means it comes from God. This means it is God-breathed, literally breathed out by God. Second Peter chapter one and verse twenty and twenty-one allude to this. But we but know this first of all that that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is not speaking of our interpretation of what we read, it's speaking of the person that God was speaking through and to, to write it down, that they did not make their own interpretation. Scripture is not the opinions of human writers, but the words of God, the very words of God. This is important. This is why we can say we have confidence in the word of God. Inspiration is the way in which God gave his word through human authors. His work extended through the human authors to each section and each word of the original documents, of which many still remain. The process of inspiration did not make the human writers puppets. They weren't just on autopilot. God worked through their personalities, their books displaying differences in, in vocabulary, in style, and other variations between authors. But inspiration overcome any tendency that they had to error. With the result that the words they wrote were precisely what God, the divine author, wanted written, intended us to have. These are important points, and it logically brings us to the question of how did we get the 66 books that are in the Bible? Other people think there's more or less. How do we get these books that got to be in the Bible? It's what's called the canon of Scripture. Canon with one N, not two. It is the list of books that belong in the Bible. The list of books that belong in the Bible. The word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, and it means a a measuring rod. It's a rule, a norm. Just like the word Bible comes from the Greek word for book. Biblos. James White explains it this way. Canon originally meant a stick by which a measurement was made. It came to be known as a rule or standard and finally came to mean the authoritative list of something like books of Scripture. But the biblical canon is much more than another way of saying the table of contents. God had to inspire a writing before it could be canonized. 
Put in the list. The canon exists because God inspired some writings and not all writings. It's known to man in fulfillment of God's purpose and engaging in action, the inspiration, so as to give his people a lamp to their feet and a light for their path. The Old Testament canon, by the way, was settled by Jesus' time, by the time God the Son became flesh. The New Testament canon is likewise closed in that no new apostolic witness to the historical Christ can be given. We're not going to add anything to it. No new revelation. As distinct from spirit-given understanding of existing revelation. Where God gives us insights into his word. No new revelation will be given until Christ comes again. Again, distinct from spirit-given understanding of existing revelation. The canon... The list was created by God's inspiration. The church's job was to figure out what God had created, not make up their own. So the first characteristic is that God's word is inspired. It is literally breathed out by God. The second characteristic is that it is inerrant. Inerrant. That means that the Bible is 100% true in everything it affirms, in its original manuscripts, it is never wrong. Never wrong. It contains no errors. It is completely correct. Scripture in the original manuscripts does not teach anything that is untrue. Titus 1-2 says, God never lies. Jesus said, thy word is truth. We can believe that. The Bible always tells the truth about everything it talks about. For example... The world was created by God. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. Because God said it. So it is inerrant. The third characteristic is that it is infallible, which is similar to inerrant but different, should not be disconnected from, but is still different. It is in- infallible. What that means is the Bible will never mislead anyone. It will never lie. It is complete truth that is never wrong and it will never mislead you. It will never lie. It is absolutely immune to error. 100% without falsehood. Absolutely reliable. It will never fail to be true. Jesus confirmed the inspiration and the authority of Scripture over and over again as he referred to Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sodom and Lot and Moses and more. You cannot accept Jesus' authority and deny scriptures as well. So what's our response? What are we to do? What should we do in response? What difference should it make to us that scripture is permanent? There are three primary responses. The first is, as inspired, God's word is lasting, and therefore we can receive it as the word of God. We can receive it for what it is. It is ironclad, it is valid, it is applicable today and always. Where the church has gone wrong, the church being the collective body of Christ has gone wrong, is when these things have been attacked 
or ignored or let fall by the wayside? How many of our universities and hospitals and other institutions were built upon the truths of Scripture and how many of them have abandoned them? The vast majority, a shell of what they used to be in terms of being a beacon of truth. Now they deny the very truth they were founded upon. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 speaks of Scripture's permanence. Isaiah 40 and verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So get yourself up on a high mountain, Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear, because you have a word that stands forever. I remember after coming to faith in Christ and wanting to know God's word. Wanting to know God's word and to read it and and to know it because I I believed that, that God had spoken and that I needed what he had to say. I brought uh, three Bibles with me today that I don't use that often anymore. They kind of sit on my shelf. But the first is my first Bible I ever received. Got this as a gift. The Children's Living Bible. It was given to me on Sunday, May 6, 1973. I was 10 years old. It was uh, my baptism day. Problem was, I didn't know Jesus. And this book became a, a, I would say, a treasured part of my collection of other books. My first Bible, I was indifferent to this book. It looked nice, it had pretty cool pictures, hooks, portraits of Christ and other biblical renderings all the way through. And when I would get sent to my room, often, to take a nap, and when I was bad and all that, I would look through here and look at the pictures, and they brought me some level of comfort. But I was indifferent to this book. I was indifferent to its message. I did not know its author. It sat on my shelf for many years. Not really that used. Now this is my first Bible that I had as a believer. Got it in 1983, year after I came to know Jesus. Things falling apart. I devoured this, this book. I, I took it with me every day to Long Beach State and conspicuously set it under my desk, on the, on the shelf, on, the, on the, the rack under my desk. And I remember uh, testing what I was being taught by what I was learning in this book. It was a great exercise, helping me to know the Word of God. I remember just going, just searching the Scriptures, getting to know the book. Wow, what a difference between, between this one and this one. What a difference. This one was a, a resource, a, a helpful resource that I could go to every, every now and again if I needed it. This one was the source of truth in my life. I remember one day 
sitting in class at Long Beach State and looking down on that shelf underneath my desk and seeing this book and thinking, my whole life is now wrapped up in this book. And God gave me a love for his word. God gave me a love for his word because it's his revelation. And it reveals his will. So, as inspired, we can trust the Word of God. We can live by it. But also, as inerrant, it is trustworthy so we can believe it. See, we can't just receive the Word of God for what it is. We need to believe the message inside of it as well. That all the person needs... To believe to be a follower of Jesus Christ is found in Scripture and no other source unless that source is quoting Scripture. God's Word is trustworthy and we can believe it. It's perfect. It will never fade away. But what will fade away are human attempts to twist the Scriptures. Look with me at 2 Peter once again. 2 Peter chapter 3. See, God's word is lasting. We can receive it. God's word is trustworthy. Therefore, we need to believe it. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us what's going to happen. You want to know what's going to happen? Just look in the word. Verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things would be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to believe in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, the word of God, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. Again, affirming the inspiration of Scripture. But also in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which there are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort... They twist, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. Now, in in 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 1, it tells us this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow after them. Heresy. Heresy is any view that deviates from the truth. It's a false teaching. These include teaching that Jesus is not God. And that the Holy Spirit is not God. And that people can become gods. And that there's more than one God as Mormonism teaches. And that good works are necessary for salvation as all cults teach. 
But if we don't base our lives on the objective word of God, we're going to base them on something subjective. And we'll fall prey to misunderstanding and misinterpreting God's word. You see, in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives six examples of false interpretation of God's word and corrects them. We're going to look at those in coming months. But God's word is trustworthy, therefore we can believe it. And the last thing is this. It's based upon this idea too, by the way. Belief in the, in the permanence of God's word doesn't guarantee a godly life. It doesn't mean you're, everything's all great between you and God. It doesn't mean that you're, you're a good parent and spouse and worker and all that. It doesn't guarantee that. There are some people who deny the permanence of Scripture, its inspiration, its, its infallibility, its inerrancy, whose lives don't show the negative effects that will get brought about in their life because of that denial. It just seems like everything's going well. There are some who affirm this teaching and their lives are not right with God. See, the third response is that as infallible, God's word is Christ-centered, therefore we can live it. We ought to live it. See, what good is belief in the inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility of God's word if we do not apply it in our hearts and our lives and live by it? In God, by God's strength, live by it and, and proclaim it to others. What good is that? Jesus is the central focus of Scripture. The Old Testament looked ahead to him. The New Testament looks back to his first coming and on to his second coming. Scripture must be seen for what it is. The witness of the Father to the incarnate Son. John chapter 5. Jesus' own words. John chapter 5 and verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And then, as we read last week in Luke 24, as Jesus was on the Emmaus road, after he rose from the dead, when he met the two men, and he opened up the scriptures, he explained to them all the things in the scriptures that were about him, pointed to him. But see, Jesus wants relevant engaged followers solidly rooted in his word who initiate with his love in words and deeds wherever they live, wherever they operate. Our being salt and light is directly related in context to Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is right before these words that Jesus speaks of the word of God. And there is a reason We are to be a preserving, enlightening influence in the world for Jesus. And because God's word is permanent, we can base our actions upon it. For example, as spouses, husbands, love your wives. That's scriptural. Wives, respect your husbands. That's scriptural. Deny yourself. That's from the word of God. Don't take offense when wronged. Husband, initiate prayer and scripture reading. Be faithful to your spouse. Sexual activity is only for marriage. These are infallible truths that will never steer you in the wrong way. You follow these things, you're never going to go astray. As parents, fathers and mothers, teach your children the word of God daily. They need to hear it from your lips. Communicate your love to them. Allow for grace and mercy, especially in the midst of discipline. Spend time with them. Those are scriptural ideas. 
As children, sons and daughters, respect and honor and obey your moms and dads. That's scriptural. Even when you disagree, appeal to them respectfully. Ask for their counsel. As workers, as employers, as employees, work hard. Be honest. Don't steal anything, not supplies or money or time. Don't gossip or slander. Take ownership for your actions. Give praise and credit where it's due. These are scriptural ideas that won't lead you astray. As students, study hard. Don't cheat. As neighbors, a good neighbor is going to be available to their neighbors to help, right? To say hello, to come by and see how they're doing. But go beyond that as a believing neighbor. Have a dessert or dinner and invite people over. Acknowledge God. Even pray before you eat. Let them know that you look to God first. Have a Bible study or or question and answer time where they can ask you questions about what you believe. Ask them what the basis of what they believe is. Be bold. Initiate. Engage with the Word of God. See, God's Word will last forever. It will last forever. Left to our own devices, we're going to go astray. And we must depend upon the written word of God. And it's not enough to call Jesus Lord, Lord, but not do what he says. That's what he says. We have a Savior who is sufficient. By his substitutionary self-sacrifice, he paid our debt and offers eternal life to anyone who would believe. We're so bad, Jesus had to die. We're so valuable to him, he wanted to die. And that faith ought to equate in observable actions that they will see, they, others that don't believe, will see the authenticity of our faith and will in turn believe. Because faith without works is dead. Scripture's permanence should give us confidence in the message we believe and bring. It is not a passing fad. It is a solid, lasting foundation. 